here at the end of May. I'm sure there's a lot of transitions coming up for some of you. Some will be graduating. Some will be moving this summer. I want you to think about for a moment, wherever you're at, your outlook on life. What is your outlook on life at this very moment? As you think about your life and think about your future, some of you may be encouraged and some of you are really looking forward to what's going to happen next and all that awaits. Your future seems bright. Back in the 1980s, there was a song from a band called Timbuk3, um, and the song was called, The Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades. Shades as in sunglasses. Any of you have ever heard that song? Thank you for those of you who are over 40. It's great. I played it for my kids last night, and of course it sounded really weird to them because none of their music is weird. Um, But back in the 80s, the song, I don't know if you know this, was played at graduations all across the, the country as students were launched into this bright future. Maybe it was played at your graduation. It's, it's, it's like, oh, the future's so bright, I've got to wear shades. Like, oh, this is so optimistic. We're launching out. So much is waiting for us as we get out there in the future. But it's, it's interesting. The writers of the song say it wasn't supposed to be about a bright future, but about a dark future. Isn't that interesting? The song, I'm just going to fill you in for those of you who need to know some 80s trivia here. The song is about a nuclear scientist, and he's starting out into the world. Here are the opening lines of the song that I will try not to sing. This is what it says. I study nuclear science. I love my classes. I got a crazy teacher. He wears dark glasses. These are deep words. (laughs) Things are going great, and they're only getting better. I'm doing all right, getting good grades. The future's so bright. I got to wear shades. All right, you with me? Now, this is the mid-'80s, and the band explains the reason why the person needed to wear shades is not because the future is optimistic. The person needed to wear shades because of the coming nuclear war. No joke. So rather than a bright future, the future was grim. Now, I found this very fascinating to me. So it's odd to think that two people can be singing this song. One is looking for a bright future, and the one sees nothing but destruction. Same song. Optimism, pessimism. (laughs) A bright future. Oh, the world's going to blow up. Same song. And I, I was thinking about this. I said, wow, that, that is such the reality that we live in that in our daily lives, we could be thinking about things that are very hopeful and also things that are, are grim and hard. So we can be having this life where there's this mix. And depending on the day, we can be wearing shades because the future's so bright, i got to wear shades. Or we can think about destruction. Our lives are about to blow up, so I better put on some shades as it blows up. 
Because there's encouraging things that I can point to that you can point to, especially if you're a believer. There's encouraging things, I guarantee you. I know it may seem like there's nothing encouraged you can point to, but if you're a believer, you can point to your salvation, your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You've been declared per- uh, perfect in Christ. You have an eternal home. There's a lot of positive things you can think of. But on the other hand, even as a believer, there are challenges, there's temptations, the relationship issues, school, health. There's a variety of challenges that you are, are facing. So ultimately, yes, the future is bright. We're going to be with the Lord forever. But on this earth, in the meantime, there's always going to be this mixture of hope and hardship. I don't care who you are. There's always going to be this mixture of hope and hardship. And depending where you're at right now, you may be feeling a lot of hope or you may be feeling a lot of hardship. But the reality is that both are going to be operating in your life until you're with the Lord forever. That story of hope and hardship is throughout the entire Bible. And especially in the part of the Bible that we've been looking at uh, over the past three weeks in the book of Ezra. We're going to see people who have now come back to the land after a long exile. So there's hopefulness, right? There's There's great hope here. And yet, as they come back to their city, it's in ruins. The temple is destroyed. And they're surrounded by opposition. Life is challenging. Now, I I know this from the Bible. That's the deal. Life is hopeful. Life is challenging. And I can give you theology, and we're going to do that for a lot of weeks. We'll tell you how God is sovereign. He loves you. He's working for your good. He's planned all this. And we've had plenty of sermons like that, and you'll get plenty more with it. But what I want to know is when I'm feeling hopeful or when things are hard, I want to know this. What am I supposed to do? Just tell me what to do. Things aren't working out for me. I know I'm supposed to be hopeful as a Christian, but right now, what am I supposed to do? Give me a game plan. Tell me logistics. Tell me what to do. Come to the right place, because that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're just going to simply look at logistics. We're going to look at the logistics in the midst of hope and hardship. We're going to see what did the people do as they were hopeful and as they were facing hard times. Let's just look at the game plan, the logistics for them, and I believe that we can adopt a lot of these details as we live in this life in between before we're being with the Lord. So go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra. Go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra. If you can't find it, look on someone next to you. Now, I've been doing this for the last few weeks, and I'm debating how many more weeks I'm going to do this, but I feel like when you come to the book of Ezra, if you're unfamiliar with it, you have no idea what's going on. What has gone on before? What's going on after? Just tell me historically where Ezra's at. So I'm going to do this, I think, one more time, maybe a few more times. Let me put up the timeline. Bear with me here, because you've got to know what we're doing here. Here's the timeline. God created the world. Human beings fell into sin. Adam and Eve sinned. We all fell with them. The world's so evil, God's going to wipe it out in the flood. Spares Noah and his family. So we have the fall with the flood. Next, we have God creating a family through Abraham. So we have the fall, the flood, with a family through Abraham. Specifically Israel. Israel's God's people in the land. They go because of a famine to Egypt. They're in Egypt for 400 years. Eventually, remember all the plagues, they have an exodus out of Egypt. That is the first exodus described in the Bible. 
Then we have the time of the kings, where we have the good King David after God's own heart. But after him, the kingdom splits. We have the northern kingdom, and we have the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom goes into exile uh, into uh, Assyria, and they never return. They are totally uh, assimilated with the people. Later on, Judah, the southern kingdom, goes into exile into Babylon due to their sin, but they remain their distinctiveness. And so after many years, 70 years later, there is this exodus out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. That is the second exodus. Then we have this 400 years of biblical silence, and then Jesus Christ comes on the scene, lives a perfect life. He's buried, he rises again, and all who believe in him participate in the third exodus of being forgiven of our sins. We have the first exodus, Moses, second exodus during the time of Ezra, and then Jesus Christ, the third exodus. Today, we're talking about the second exodus. We're talking about the time during Ezra, as the people are coming back to the land and getting established in the land. And we, the point of the book of Ezra is that it's a story of starting over, that God doesn't scrap his wayward people. He doesn't scrap them, but restores and renews them so they can worship him. It's a, it's a hopeful story that no matter how far you've gone from God, no matter how deep into sin you have gotten that you can repent and come back and be restored. Let's recap where we have been over the last three weeks in Ezra. Overview. Chapter 1. King Cyrus proclaims a return of the exiles to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, the move from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. For those of you who missed it last week, uh, we preached about a list of names. It's really exciting. Go back and listen to that sermon. Uh, just a whole list of names of all those who returned to Jerusalem to show that no one is irrelevant in God's plan. Chapter 3 is the beginning of work and worship. It's the logistics of the people being back in the land, having hope and yet facing hardship. It's God's plan of action for them in the midst of being hopeful and life is challenging. That's where we're at, chapter 3. Let's go ahead and dive in to Ezra 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. This is the first year of the return. It's in the seventh month, that's September, October time. It came around as it was the most significant month of celebrations during the Jewish calendar. The people had already settled into the land, into their own towns, and now they came together as one man to Jerusalem. Eventually, what they're going to do is they're trying to rebuild the temples. That's the goal of their pilgrimage, was to work and to worship. They were there to see that the altar was built, so they began to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. So life is very hopeful. They're all gathering as one people. Praise God. He brought us all here safely. It's now time to rebuild the altar. Things are looking up. Things are going great. Life is hopeful. Verse 2. Then arose Joshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. The leaders of the rebuild, once again, are Zerubbabel, along with his kinsmen, and Joshua, along with his fellow priests. Before they built the city walls, before they built the temple, they're going to build the altar so that worship can take place. 
They don't wait to get it all together. They don't say, well, we'll worship once we get the walls built. We'll worship once we get the temple built. No, their first priority is worship. Let's build the altar so that we can worship. That's the goal of the rebuild, worship. Let's get right to it. So they work out these specifications and the location, and it says that worship happened as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the altar would be in place, and the altar would be a place, if you notice, it would be a place of burnt offerings. That means that animals would be sacrificed to atone for sin. The idea is that God's wrath, instead of being poured out on the worshiper, will be poured out on the animal who was killed and then burned at this altar so that sins can be forgiven and they would have fellowship with God. Quickly, I want you to jump at the end of verse 3 and notice that these burnt offerings on it to the Lord, these burnt offerings happened in the morning and the evening. So they're gathering together. They're offering these burnt offerings in the morning and the evening. This is good news. They're finally back in the land. God is meeting with his people again. They're, they're, they're in the beginning stages of renewal, and the people are filled with hope. So here's the first logistic. They come back, get the altar set up, and they meet with God, and they do it on a daily basis. Real simple logistic here. Real simple. Meet with God on a daily basis. No matter what you're going through, your hope can be fueled with the simple logistic of meeting with God on a daily basis. Not with a repeated animal sacrifice over and over again. You don't need to do that. Jesus Christ died once and for all for your sins, was buried, rose again. You repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ, you're reconciled to the Father, and now you can meet with God every single day. You have free access to him through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. Think about this. Many of you are in your field of study. Many of you are off in your careers. And there are certain people in your field of study, certain people in your careers who is an expert. What if I told you you can meet with that expert every single day to coach you along in your career. Not someone who's going to go off on you, but someone who's going to coach you and encourage you. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome? We're talking about every day you can meet with God, who is an expert over your soul. You've been reconciled to him, and you have the opportunity, no matter what you're going through, of meeting with God, who cares you so much to send his son to die for you, and you can meet with him every single day. Someone once said, one of the best things you can do for somebody is every single day, give them a Bible and a pencil. A pencil, maybe they can just write stuff, circle stuff, write stuff down. That's one of the best things you do because you can meet with God every day as you get in his word. It seems so simple. And a lot of the issues that you're struggling with doesn't mean you're going to go away, but they're going to make a lot more sense and you're going to feel a lot more hope if you would just simply, logistically, Meet with God every single day, getting into his word, talking to him. Now, I, I, I've, I've heard stories before of people saying they've gone through a dark night of the soul. And I know you've heard that phrase before, and I believe that it's real. Some of you can go through some pretty dark, deep times in your life. I've been to those places. 
what, what, I've heard somebody give a testimony before. I was going through such a dark time that I didn't read my Bible for two years. And I thought to myself, I'm not saying the Bible is going to magically lift you out of your darkness. But when you set the word aside because you're going through a deep time of depression or darkness or struggling, you, you have no perspective. You're getting no hope. You're getting no insight. There should not be a time in your life you go, well, I'm really depressed. Boom, set this aside. No. No matter what you're going through, you should have a daily meeting with God, not in a way that I'm saying being legalistic here. I'm saying God knows you. He knows what's going on. He wants to talk to you through his word daily. It's a simple logistic that's often neglected. This daily meeting with God through his word. But just because you meet with God through his word doesn't mean there's not going to be challenges. Look at the challenges the Israelites had. Look at verse 3 again. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. All right, so God opened the door for them to return. But there's these people of the lands who is already there. They're pushing back and challenging them. And we can have a lot of debate, like, who are these people messing with them? Uh, Maybe it is... Some of the Jews that stayed behind, that didn't go into the exile. Maybe these are the pagans that are in the land. It's, it's most likely Samaritans. <laughs> Jews that stayed behind, that assimilated with the other people. Now they see the other Jews returning back, setting up an altar, trying to be a distinct people. And the peoples of the land say, no, 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 we, we don't like that. So there is hostility pushing back against the returnees. They're building the altar, and the people around are pushing back. And as I was reading this, I thought, you know, who opened the door for the returnees to come back? Do you remember? God did. Clear in chapter 1. And just because God opens a door doesn't mean there won't be challenges. God brought them back to the land, but it was still hard. And sometimes we think that once God swings wide, that door opens. Say, God, just give me clarity. He gives you clarity. Oh, I see your will, your vision. And you assume that it's going to be smooth sailing. That's not the case. Because when God swings wide that door open and you step out in faith, there is still going to be a lot of challenges. And some of them are going to cause a lot of fear in you. Back in 2008, I thought it was very clear to my wife and to myself, we thought it was God's will for sure, for sure, we've, we, through a lot of prayer, meeting with others, we, th- we felt for sure that it was God's will for us to pursue an adoption in Ethiopia. God swung the door open so wide, he made financial provision. You ever think about finances for adoption? Adoptions are expensive, especially internationally. But God was making finances for that. So we went to an agency, we went through all the process, and the agency, our first agency, ended up dropping us and calling us unfit parents. So we're like, God, you swung wide door. And so we're like, fearful. Is this this really ever going to happen? Finally, another agency picked us up. And so we're going through the process and we're just waiting. Now you wait for a referral. It's kind of like a match. And we were waiting. Still not happening. A month passes. More and more and more and more months pass. Finally, couple years later, we, we get a referral. We're like, okay, God, you, you made this referral. So then we, we flew over to Ethiopia. Now, you fly to Ethiopia the first time because you've got to go to court. We go there. We show up. We go to court. We believe this is totally God. He's opened the door. We're Here we go. We're about to go to court. This is going to make, make it legal. We didn't pass court. 
Don't know the reasons why, just didn't passport. So we left Ethiopia in the, uh, the um, December of 2010 without having legal adoption of our daughter. We left her there, we left Ethiopia, we flew back to the States. Finally, we passed court. And the only hurdle left was to pass embassy through the American uh, embassy. They had to approve um, all the immigration stuff. And they just weren't doing it. They just weren't doing it. They were not putting the paperwork together because of the misspelling. And we're fearful. Is this ever going to happen? And then finally, it finally happens. So about three-something years later, feeling like God opened the door and yet there was so much fear that gripped us in the meantime. It was almost like we were on this, this great fear roller coaster. Have you ever, anybody ever been on this great fear roller coaster? You're like, God has opened the door. God, I know you're speaking. I know you opened the door. I know it's your will. And yet stuff is just not working. And it, and it makes you scared. I, I've, I've talked to people who, who believe for sure that God has brought you to this school to work on this degree. And it's not working. And it scares you. Some of you have moved here. You believe God brought you here for this job, and it's not working, and it is scary, and you find yourself going up, and you find yourself going down, and going up, and going down, going to the left, to the right. You're like, I, I don't like that. Well, that's kind of what's going on here with the Israelites. Who brought them back to the land? God did. If God brought them back to the land, then why are they facing opposition? But here's what I like about the Israelites. Their fear did not paralyze them, but it catalyzed them. Their fear catalyzed them to worship. I want you to see it again. I don't know if you picked up on it in verse 3. Look again. It says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. This fear drove them to worship and seek the Lord. It's it's not a bad motive to seek the Lord when you're scared. I often find that fear reignites my worship and focus on the Lord. If you want some logistics, you're fearful right now of what's going on in your life. You want some logistics of what am I supposed to do? I'm so scared. All right, here we go. Utilize fear to catalyze worship. Utilize fear to catalyze worship. What I mean by that is that all the fear that you're feeling and you normally want to go to food, you normally want to go to porn, or you normally want to go and get drunk because you're so fearful, throw that aside and use the fear to go to the Lord. Worship him, praise him, seek his face. Utilize that fear you're feeling and go to the Lord. A couple weeks ago, uh, I saw a movie um, with my wife and a couple of my older kids called Sing Street. It's, it's set in the 80s. Uh, it's interesting. I, I was, I'm a child of the 80s, and um, I was a teenager in the 80s, and I was really connecting with this movie because the main character, his parents are going through a divorce almost like the same age my parents are going through a divorce in the 80s. It was really wild. I was like, I was watching my story, sort of, uh, because this guy, he wants to impress this girl, and the way he's going to impress this girl is he, he tells her he has a band, except he didn't have a band. So he had to form this band, and he's going through this hard time, and he's trying to impress this girl. So he forms this band, and they need to start writing songs. And the girl's background is basically she's living in a group foster home because she has abuse in her background. So she has a broken background. He has a broken background. And they start talking about what kind of songs do you write? 
So if you come from a broken background, what do you, what do you think? You think, okay, I need to write all my songs that need to all be depressing, or I need to write all my songs and they all need to be happy, uh, cheery songs. But, but what the girl says is, no, no, write songs that are happy, sad. A combination of this happy, sad, because we're broken, we're fearful with things going on in our life, and yet we can have hope. And, and I kind of latched onto that happy, sad idea, and I think, wow, that, that's really a lot of our worship songs, right? We talk about sin, and yet we have redemption in Christ. We talk about temptations, and yet we have freedom and a hopeful future. So, so as Christians, we're not being uh, always chipper and happy and thinking everything's going to go great. We say, you know what? There are things in this world that are broken. There are things in me that are broken. There are things in me that cause fear. And yet I'm not going to just try to brush that off, but I'm going to say, you know what? In my fear, in my brokenness, I am going to worship the Lord. Use your fear to catalyze your worship. That's a great logistic. Not only did they worship but I want you to notice that they kept the rituals. Here's some more logistics. If we look at verse 4 and 5. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. It's interesting they kept the Feast of Booths, which was a reenactment of the desert wanderings where they lived in the makeshift huts out in the wilderness to reflect on God's redeeming love during the time of the Exodus. And I'm sure these reflections were also about their own deliverance out of Babylon. And if you also notice, they, they observed all the appointed feasts as well as the daily burnt offerings and free will offerings. They're, they're trying to get back into the rituals that they had in the past. They're hopeful and yet they're fearful. And the logistics in the midst of this hope and hardship is simply this. Establish a rhythm of obedience. Things may be messed up in your life right now. Things may be hard right now. doesn't mean you get out of a rhythm of obedience. Too many times I have seen people go through hard times in their life and they stop with the rhythms. They stop going to church. (laughs) They stop reading the word. They stop fellowship with others. And yet, no matter what you're feeling right now, healthy rhythms are, hey, keep, keep, keep going to church. Keep being in the ethos community. Keep worshiping. Keep yourself in accountability. Keep yourself in the word. Keep repenting. Keep giving. Keep these rhythms in your life and it may not make sense sometimes you just show up on Sunday and go I don't know why I'm here I'm 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 not doing good keep that rhythm I'm so open to my word I don't feel good that I'm just gonna open the word I don't keep the rhythms of obedience things aren't perfect the people are still in the land they're still pressing on and they have these rhythms of obedience let's keep looking keep looking so they're worshiping they're keeping their rhythms there's still work that needs to be done look at verse 6 From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. The worship's begun at the altar, but the temple was still in ruins. 
So they needed to build this, this base, this foundation of it. So a lot of people gave money to get this work going. They contracted out the work to the Sidonians and the Tyrians who brought in these cedar trees from Lebanon with the authorization and approval of Cyrus. So the work gets going. Verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezazadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Zerubbabel, heads up the building project along with Yeshua, the priest who supervises, and they're working on the house of God to make sure all the work is done to biblical specifications. So they have the altar going on, and they're about to lay the foundation, and they laid the foundation. Now I want you to watch what happens. It's one of the most classic passages in the entire Bible of worship and weeping at the same time. It's a classic passage of the Bible of hope and this hardship. I mean, you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a passage in the Bible that combine the two like this, this idea of worship and weeping at the same time. It, it would be like our assembly here, just worshiping and praising God, and some of you just crying and mourning, and it was so loud you couldn't distinguish one from the other. That's what's about to happen. It's a classic passage. Let me just read this to you. Start in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation, here's the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord. It's going to be loud, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Loud worship, praise music. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And it's not, not even a temple, it's just the foundation. And they're praising the Lord. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, And the sound was heard far away. Worship, praise, so loud. Weeping and mourning is so loud. It's all blended together. The older people who saw the first temple when they were taken away, they saw Solomon's temple, they wept. Solomon's temple was magnificent. And the Lord filled it with his glory. But this new one was a puny little temple. This past Monday, my wife and I went to the bank to get a a document notarized. 
and we sat down with a bank manager who's been in the industry for 36 years. I don't know how we got talking, but he started reminiscing on how everything has changed. The good old days are gone. Back in the good old days, you could be at the bank and you could give someone a loan based upon their character and their references. That's all gone. There used to be this customer-manager relationship that lasted forever. But now people, it's been said that some people would rather go to the dentist than to the bank. And he was sad. But he still had a job. And he still had something to do. And these older men who are weeping, they still have what looks like the beginning of a temple. And they can still worship. And I I think that God saw the response, especially of those who are weeping. And the prophet Zechariah, get this, the prophet Zechariah prophesied something during this time about this temple. This is, this is one of my favorite verses in Zechariah. And I'm just, this is what he said, Zechariah, God said through him, about this temple. Let me put it up for you. Zechariah 4.10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Let me read that to you again. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Don't despise this small work because God is in it and blessing it. Though they could not see it then, what is so cool, I don't know if you realize, this is very cool. This foundation, this altar, this is the beginning of the temple that Jesus will enter during his lifetime. Herod will remodel this temple, but these initial foundations will one day host the Messiah who will save his people from their sins. God is still working in the small things. Don't despise these small beginnings. And two weeks from now, we're going to have this big reveal of where we're sending out our next church planter along with the team. We usually plant, always plant, by universities. This time it will be in Chicago. But when we sent out our first team to St. Paul, Minnesota, it was a small team. They went up there, and that church is boomed, multiplied, beyond what we sent out. Then we sent out a, a small team to Rogers Park, and that is tripled in size. We sent out a small team to Florida, and that's boom. And we're asking people to not despise a day of small beginnings and consider joining this next planting team here in Chicago. And I want to encourage you, wherever you're at in your life, and you're thinking about your daily struggles, I want you to believe that God is still working even in small things. Do you believe that God is still working even in small things? Your life not be as it was before. Your life might not be. You do not want to be where you're at now. Some of you are so mad where you're at now. You're so frustrated. Don't despise 
small work that God may be doing in your life. Don't despise these days of small beginnings because you may be surprised that God is still moving and working. No matter who you are, if you are in Christ, I guarantee you God is still moving and working even in the small things for his good, for your good, and for his glory. And there is a story I, I read this week that I, I just couldn't get out of my head. It's such a simple story. And I thought, this is, this is, I think, what we're getting at spiritually, this small things, small beginnings, not despising them. It's a story of a, a reporter for a, a newspaper. Maybe you, you've heard of him. He's much bigger now. But back in the day when he started off, uh, William Zinser had his first job with the Buffalo News. And mainly his first job as a reporter, was writing obituaries. That was his job. And he was so frustrated and thought, hey, I'm like this Pulitzer Prize caliber of a writer. Why, why am I writing obituaries? He asked his editor, um, when is he going to write some good stuff? When is he going to write some real stories? When does he get to do some real investigative reporting? And his editor was a wise old man and said to him, Listen, kid, nothing you will ever write will get read as carefully as what you're writing right now. You misspell a word, you mess up on a date, and the family will be hurt. But you do justice to someone's grandmother, to somebody's mom. You will make a life sing, and they will be grateful forever. They will put your words in laminate. <laughs> it changed his whole mindset from writing these simple obituaries. He went the extra mile. He would call people and say, I'm making sure I've got the right date. Is this the right relationship? This is, this is what's going on. Is this their history? And he, he went the extra mile to work as hard as he could to write these obituaries that deserved to be laminated. And eventually, he went on to write books on writing that sold millions. And chances are some of you have these books in your own home or, or you read them for school. But it all started when he threw himself into what seemed like small work. You've got to believe that God is still working in your life in the small things. Give attention to it, to pay attention, to do even the small things. Maybe not be, it's not what you want, right? It's not what you want, it's not where you want to be. But God has called you to obey and to give attention to the small things in your life. Though you may be dreaming of something bigger, God says, has something for you to do right now in small ways that you can be faithful and that you can obey him. The reality is, this is life. It's often a mixture of joy and sadness, of hope and hardship. And all I want to know through all this, I know theologically God is good. He is sovereign. So I just want to know, what am I supposed to do? This is a pretty good plan here, chapter 3. Something that's so simple, meet with God on a daily basis. How are you doing with that? This is, if you feel convicted and feel kind of burdened right now, Good. How are you doing a meeting with God on a daily basis? Simple Bible and pencil type stuff. Are you meeting with God on a daily basis? Getting some perspective and inter- interacting with a relationship with him. I know some of you are fearful. Things are hard. Are you using your fear 
to catalyze your worship or are you using your fear to catalyze your eating, to catalyze your drinking, to catalyze your sexual morality? What, what are you using fear to do? What is fear generating in your life? What is happening? What are you turning to besides the Lord? What we see here is this fear is catalyzing worship. And what about your rhythms? Are you in corporate rhythms of obedience, of worship, of fellowship? Are you in rhythms of with the Lord, repenting, giving? Are you in these rhythms of obedience? And lastly, one of the hardest ones, do you believe that God is still working in your life? Even in the small things? Do you believe in the little bitty details that are so hard to distinguish that God is working? He's not left you. He's not forsaken you. He is there. Are you following through with the small stuff and being faithful? My brothers and sisters, in the midst of this hopeful life we have in Christ and of the hardship, you need to know God is still working. So let us worship him and obey him until we are with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, at times we get so hard-pressed when we see our enemies like the Israelites did. And our enemies can be those who are closest to us. And our enemies can be things that are happening to us. And we see these things and we want to bail on a relationship with you. We want to bail and turn to sin. And I just ask, Lord, that you would help us to turn to you through Christ. You would help us to worship you, even in our fear. And help us to stay close to people when we want to just run away. And I pray specifically for the man or the woman in here who just really doesn't believe that what's happening in their life is worth anything. Let them know that you're still working, even in the small ways. And may they see it. Somehow give them insight today that you're still working, even in the small ways. And give them the strength and the ability to obey even in the small things. To do the small ways of obedience. To love others. To serve you. And all the details. Father, as we face hope and we look forward to being with you one day, we see the suffering and the path that awaits us until we're there. But may we stay close to you and stay in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.